What does healing mean to you? So healing doesn't necessarily to me mean absence of pain because I don't think we can promise that to anybody. podcast raising unanswered questions sharing unanswered prayers we are faith-based peer-led story-driven and stigma breaking i am tony roberts i am eric riddle and And we are revealing voices Welcome to episode two of season two. We are glad it's spring. It's been a cold winter. Yeah, Studio E here doesn't have much insulation. We're both huddled up in in two or three layers. We do have wood grain paneling from the 70s. (laughs) Yes, and uh, we've got some Legos over there. Oh, yeah. It's very eclectic. Eric just put his... Haiku cube. Up. Yeah. And uh, I'll take a picture and put it on the, uh, the there website. You go. Yeah. And jot down some samples of some of your haiku. Sure. That you know, this nice. piece was part of a Columbus uh, Arts Council event, and no one purchased it. Well, uh, sure. Some generous benefactor. Well, the generous benefactor <laughs> who purchased it was me. I, I bought my own art. We'll let our website viewers comment on what they think of this piece. Yes. When I get to actually tell the story of it, because this is a, it's called colorful language. And it's colorful because I've got high cubes glued to a block, Mm -hmm. wrapped in colorful yarn. Yep. It's kind of like a dream catcher Mm -hmm. slash colorful black block. (laughs) uh, Okay. I will read colorful language. Our electric life embraced dark beauty, dreamy, giant moon. You know, I think we ought to auction this off to our listeners and see if we can raise money for revealing voices. That's interesting. Yeah, you, you never know. So the, let's the bids talk. the bids start at two hundred and fifty dollars, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk some about what else is happening in our lives. Yeah, it's Lent season. Yeah, it is, and you have a Lenten focus this year. I do. Um, I try to have one every year. I, a couple of years ago, I did silence and solitude, and I really like that. So I wanted to do something along those lines, and so this year. Uh, I decided my Lent discipline would be when I come home from work, I would go uh, downstairs into my man cave and pray. Very similar to Studio E. Yeah, it's it's just a writer adjacent through the, through the door there. No wood grain, just cement blocks in there. Maybe a little bit colder, but uh, yeah, going in there and praying uh, because it, it's I think very important to have more of space in that transition from work. Uh, to, to home, and, and sometimes bringing in that energy can be a little bit stressful. So far, I mean, it's been a week, mm-hmm. and it, it's been very good for me. Good. You find your spirit has been soothed. 
my spirit has been soothed. Good. Yes. Well, one thing I've been doing in Lent uh, is uh, going to continue after Lent, but I'm stepping into my role as faith and mental health advocate, St. Peter's. I'm finding one thing that people, once they know who I am and what I do, are opening up about mental health struggles in their own lives and uh, in the lives of their family members, almost without exception, people have a story yeah. to, to share. And uh, the ability to connect this with faith and access faith as part of healing um, has been has been very fruitful, and I anticipate it will continue. So, Tony, Celebrate Recovery is something the churches have been doing for a long time and uh, is very popular. Is, is St. Peter's doing that? Yeah, they. Uh, I don't know how long St. Peter's has been doing, but I did a little research, and it began in 1990 with mm. uh, Saddleback, a guy named John Baker. And it is now uh, at St. Peter's. Uh, a fellow named Chris Sparks is a very dynamic, a very devoted leader. Uh, and people come every Friday night and uh, encourage one another, share their stories, and, and this is, it's out. mainly about addictions, right? Yeah, uh, substance uh, abuse primarily, although the language is uh, hurts, habits, and something else. Yeah, three H's that have more to do broadly with substance and behavior. Uh, but, you know, one thing you and I have discussed is that uh, there's no, no comparable program in the realm of mental health, mental mm-hmm. illness. Right. And the story that comes up to me again and again is we are in Faithful Friends, our, our group that's a mental health, you know, wellness group. And one day a guy walks in and he says, is this a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, an NA meeting? I said, no, it's a, it's a mental health support group. And he says, well, this is not the group for me, you know. And, um, like, I get it, you know. Someone who has a substance uh, abuse issue wants to think that it has nothing to do with uh, their mental health, right? And, I mean, unfortunately, because of that great divide in a lot of people's minds over this, they would prefer to have a street drug than be prescribed uh, a medicine by a doctor. You know, it just breaks my heart that people would rather take heroin than Wellbutrin, you yeah. know? It speaks to, to the stigma involved both in the world and self-stigma we put on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mentioned several times speaking at a conference about shattering stigma with stories. Mm. And Eric, you took a big step in, in sharing your story, right? I did. Yeah. My, my manager lives in Seattle and we have a great relationship. I really appreciate her emotional intelligence and uh, really feel connected uh, to her uh, regardless you know, of our distance. She comes back here to Columbus about every two months. And so the most recent time she was here in February, uh, I took the opportunity to share with her my, my mental health diagnosis. And it went really well. Uh, it, it's just a step, in my sense, of building trust. And she was happy that I felt comfortable enough to share with her. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's just another step in, in strengthening our, our, our working relationship also. Now, ha- having taken that risk, how 
you feel more or less secure in your position? I, I feel more secure. In, in the stability network, uh, we're encouraged to share our diagnosis at work as a way of normalizing our, uh, our condition, right? One of the reasons for that is because oftentimes people do not disclose in the workplace until they're in a very bad place. Mm-hmm. You know, they might be on the brink of going to the hospital because, mm-hmm. you know, they're suicidal or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, have not been able to get to work consistently for the past month, right. that sort of thing. So we talk about it as a disclosure of health, of, of good mm-hmm. health. So we can just let people know that we're healthy, we're working in the workplace, you know, this mm-hmm. is a condition we have. Uh, someone might, you know, share that they have diabetes. And, yep. you know, it happens a lot of time. People talk about their health conditions, their family's health conditions a lot. And so, um, you know, I've yeah. had experiences on both sides. I've had experiences where I selectively and I think quite wisely shared my diagnosis and the impact and what it would mean. And I've also been in work settings where I tried to keep it a secret and precisely what you mentioned happened. I wound up uh, uh, having complications from my illness, uh, uh, had episodes and turned into a crisis. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was hard to pick up the pieces and then ultimately uh, had to, because of the progression of my illness, uh, accept a disability package. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm only now being able to, to go back into the workforce. Yeah. I can say this is actually the fourth time I've disclosed to my manager. Mm-hmm. And the first two times it was when I was on the brink of going to the hospital, mm-hmm. and that made me feel less secure at work. It really was very difficult sharing that, and I think the outcomes were were tough in those scenarios. And mm-hmm. I would say for anybody, uh, this is not an easy decision. Mm-hmm. Um, have to be very discerning, very discreet. Um, you know, talk to friends and family before mm-hmm. making that decision. Certainly, you're therapist or psychiatrist, right. probably therapists, yeah. Absolutely. Pastors, trusted yes. advisors. Yes. Yeah. I think that, you know, to disclose it with most people, whether it's in the workplace or, uh, you know, in other situations, it's important to be discerning. Mm-hmm. So you and I have talked some. Uh, Leslie Carpenter, who's the president of NAMI in Johnson County, Iowa, I believe mm. it is, yeah. put out a question on Facebook about what would we name behavioral health units if we had our choice. Yeah. Uh, and Eric, you had a good suggestion. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about, you know, when you need to go to a hospital uh, or an outpatient clinic to receive psychiatric services, right? Inpatient or outpatient. And oftentimes, as you say, they're called behavioral units or stress units, those sorts mm-hmm. of things. And I've never liked those terms. I I prefer mental health unit. I think it is broad. I think it's uh, inclusive, w- welcoming. You know, we focus on the health. It's focused more on the physiology than it is on the behavior. I really don't like when you focus on behavior, it sounds like mm-hmm. uh, you need to be disciplined. Something's wrong with your behavior. It's mm-hmm. not so much about your brain condition. So I agree that mental health unit would work for uh, many who are currently seeking treatment on what we call behavioral health units. 
depression, anxiety, uh, OCD, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of the DSM, whatever they're up to, right. six, seven. Uh, yeah. And uh, yet at the same time, I would like to see uh, a broader uh, brain center or brain clinic mm-hmm. that would have units for epilepsy, autism, stroke victims. Perhaps you would lodge mental health units as well as substance abuse units. But then you would have a neurological psych- psychiatric unit, which mm-hmm. would include people in the big four categories, people with schizophrenia, uh, people with schizoaffective, bipolar, mm-hmm. and uh, chronic major depression, right. lifelong uh, brain disorders, brain diseases that mm-hmm. uh, we are very close to. We can already see in a brain scan, and we are very close to being able to yes to treat mm-hmm. effectively. So I, I hear you saying that a brain center would be... Yeah, I name. think if we had this housed in, in one, like, a Cleveland clinic, if we had one campus for these separate units, uh, we we would certainly get more funding if you brought together neuropsych with uh, Alzheimer's units. Yeah. Uh, like a heart center, you have it all together. Absolutely. I. I really like that. I think that's even more inclusive than what you know I was thinking, and I mean it, it goes right along with uh, you know heart centers at hospitals, mm-hmm. uh, lung centers. Those are certainly very common names of centers at hospitals, mm-hmm. and so having a brain center makes total sense. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that. So we're coming up on uh, Kevin Moore, our guest yes. today. Kevin has served faithfully in public service for well over three decades. So he is the Indiana Department of Mental Health and Addiction Director. That's a big job. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad we're able to get him on the show, talking about from a legislative perspective, from a policy perspective. And a personal. He, he talks some about his wife, and I think you'll find it a very good interview. So, Kevin, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, would you describe your position and what do you do for the state of Indiana? Sure. I am the uh, director of the State Division of Mental Health and Addiction. That division sits within the large umbrella state agency called the Family and Social Services Administration. Um, I've been the director of this division since January of 2012, so a little over seven years into this role. Um, and it's um, been one of the most challenging and most rewarding uh, positions I've had in state government. Prior to my work with the Division of the Mental Health Addiction, I worked uh, 24 years with the Department of Correction in a number of capacities in adult facilities, juvenile programs, as well as in the central office uh, in Indianapolis. Tell us what drew you into this realm uh, of this vocation. Um, it was really by happenstance. Um, I've got a bachelor's degree in psychology from Indiana State. Um, in 1984, I uh, interviewed for a, an internship in state government. At that time, the sitting governor, Robert Orr, um, was selecting those internships, those interns himself. So we went in in, in groups wow. of 10, and he asked us all one question. And I'm in the room with political science majors, people on their way to law school. And the question was, why do you want to work in state government? 
Um, so there were lots of answers around the financing of state government, the politics of state government, the legislation of state government. Um, but when it came to me, my interest really lied in how does the state provide services to its citizens, whether it's to children, whether it's to families or to people in need. And that has really been kind of where I have stayed in my whole career, whether it be with the Department of Correction on how do we make uh, the services within institutions better? How do we serve people better in the community, as well as work within the, uh, the Division of Mental Health and Addiction? It sounds like you uh, are very motivated to cut through the red tape. There is plenty of red tape to cut. <laughs> um, uh, there's a, lots of bureaucracy, lots of uh, rules, lots of regulations that uh, are sometimes barriers. At the end of the day, our job is to serve people. I love yeah. that attitude. You mentioned as your motivation the uh, desire, the the calling, if you will, to serve persons in need. And uh, we talk some on our program and elsewhere about the least of these. You know, when Jesus says, what you do for the least of these, you do unto me. How would you say your faith has impacted your work in the field of mental health? That's a great question. Um, I think it really starts with every individual um, has worth. And every individual is deserving of help and assistance when needed. Um, we're called to do that as believers. Um, and I try to infuse that into the work that, uh, that I do and that uh, my division does um, to realize that at the other end of that phone call or the other end of that letter someone receives is somebody who's in need of something. You realize and finally get to the point where you can put those individuals first as opposed to the process first. It changes the, the dynamic of the conversation. Um, whether that is an inmate, whether that is a kid in a juvenile detention center, um, it might be a staff person who's struggling. Um, one thing we always have preached to staff is leave your problems at the door. Don't bring them into work with you. But people can't do that. Um, we're affected what happens at breakfast, what happened last night, what's going on with, with our family, what's going on with our friends. So all of that impacts uh, people as they do the work. But when you realize that every individual has worth, Every individual is uh, worth fighting for and understanding and trying to get them to a better place. Uh, um, it has a significant impact on how you approach it. So the flip side of that, you and I talked about how uh, mental health service and those involved in the field of mental health service are also informed by the faith, the way we serve as persons who have a mental illness or persons who serve others with mental illness informs our faith. So how would you say it has been for you or others that you've worked with? When uh, I hear lots of stories of people in recovery, whether it's in recovery from mental illness or an addiction, a high percentage of those, 80 to 90 percent, have some element of spiritual uh, connection um, when a person tells their recovery story. Um, it may not be the same way I believe, but they believe somebody helped them. There was a larger power. There was a God that helped them get through that. Second to that is they found somebody who cared. Finally, they found a doctor that listened. They got on the right medication. Somebody would listen to me and, and take the time to understand what's going on. So I think those two things are the, mo are the things I hear most when I hear a recovery story. Their gratefulness and their, their, their spiritual journey comes out, as well as the fact that somebody listened to them. I'm really curious, Kevin, about your thoughts on the language around the opioid epidemic. You know, that, that's very strong right. language. It's you know, perhaps the biggest national crisis in public health in the nation. For someone who sits in a place in government 
I'd like your perspective on what epidemic means to you and what tools we have in society to really address this as quickly as possible. I think you have to look at epidemic on a couple of different levels. If it's someone in my family right now going through that, that's an epidemic for me because um, that's real. That is tangible. That is somebody that is, is close. To look at it on a broader scale, um, you really have to look at the impact that uh, that the opiate crisis has, has created. And the reason it's uh, the, the cause of the epidemic is the lethality of that of that substance. Um, it kills people. And um, we have more people in Indiana that use alcohol and marijuana and methamphetamine, but they're not necessarily dying from it as quickly. That's the reason for the focus on the opiate crisis. Um, that's the reason why our federal government has just poured millions of dollars to the states to help combat and fight this crisis to uh, get people into treatment, provide treatment, and then support their recovery. But one thing that, that I know is that next year, in two years, there'll be something else. And we want to make sure that whatever we build in terms of treatment infrastructure for opiates can also be used for treatment infrastructure for other substances. A couple of examples, we didn't have enough residential treatment. It was hard to get into residential addiction treatment, and it still is in Indiana. Um, but with the federal dollars, we've been able to increase our residential beds by about 30% in Indiana. That was funded with money that uh, supports opiate addiction, but now it's in place for other folks as well. So that's what I mean by building the, in the treatment infrastructure um, as part of the, uh, the outcome of this crisis. That is good. This crisis affects not just the individual, as, as most addictions and mental illnesses don't just affect the individual, their families, but also we've got a generation of children who've seen their parents uh, die from this. They've seen their parents overdose and be revived. They've seen parents, they've been removed from their parents. So we've got a, a significant generation of children that are now in our schools that have had to deal with this as children and social service systems, mental health systems, addic addiction systems, Will be uh, will need to be alongside those kids as they develop and turn into adults. You said you've been in this position yes. for about seven years yes. as the director of DMHA. Have you seen your role change in response to the epidemic? One of the things I noticed when I became director was whether whether the topic was mental health or an, an addiction. If it was happening within another another state agency. Uh, we weren't necessarily at the table. What I've noticed over the past seven years, I think it's, some of it's due to the opiate crisis, is they begin to engage with us around what's best practice, how do we get things organized. I've never been one to want just a quick um, one-shot solution to an issue. These are systemic issues. There are many paths to addiction, many paths to mental illness. So we've got to have many paths to recovery. We've got to make sure that treatment continuum um, is in place wherever we can, as much as we can. It strikes me, Kevin, that you're being pulled in many directions. Right away, I, I hear, uh, you know, I, I hear people say, you know, there needs to be more done for uh, substance abuse, you know, residential care. There's also the, the case of, of dual diagnosis, you know, people who have both mental illness and substance abuse issues. And I also hear people, myself included, who say, you know, look, we're, you know, right now, this year, substance abuse is, is sort of the, the trendy treatment. <laughs> you know, it's like, meanwhile, there are, 
countless persons with mental illness, you know, floundering in prison and they're getting worse. How do you balance that, those roles that you play? That becomes very, very difficult balancing act um, because you're right. Access to mental health care and access to addiction and treatment. Certain zip codes, certain counties have a tremendous amount of resources and it's easier to access those resources for treatment and recovery than in lots of our rural counties and even some of our smaller towns. One thing we don't want uh, is that our jails and our prisons become the place where you have to go to get treatment. We want to make sure that as people are beginning to struggle, there are opportunities for them to get into care. However, there's a whole lot of people that end up in jail and prison every year. And while they're there, I think we have a responsibility to make sure we are providing the best mental health care and addiction care that we can because 95% of those folks in jail or prison are going to be right out among us again at some point. If we can get them connected to treatment and care while they're incarcerated and then quickly connect them on the, on, on the release date to community care, um, we've got a much better shot at mm -hmm. them being successful with their recovery and living among us uh, successfully. I always like to ask people who are in positions to maybe see this, the, the, the trend of telehealth, uh, in helping um, individuals who might be from those more rural locations, uh, maybe helping those who aren't comfortable going to treatment sites but prefer to be maybe in an office at a school, for instance, or from their home. Uh, how much uh, interaction do you have with that, that growing trend of, of telehealth as part of mental we, health? Uh, we've approached that from a couple of angles. One you just mentioned from how do you reduce the stigma around seeking care. Um, if people could people can walk into a, a, a primary care physician's office. Nobody knows what they're there for. They're there to see a primary care physician. But if we can embed a social worker or a psychologist or do some telemedicine while they're there, telepsychiatry while they're there, that's great. Um, I'm a, a huge believer in treating the whole person. Uh, our heads are not disconnected from our bodies. And we've got to make sure that that, that care is as integrated as possible. Um, and telemedicine helps make that possible. The other route we got uh, involved with telemedicine is just the sheer numbers of um, the lack of workforce in Indiana. Um, we, uh, we have a limited number of psychiatrists, limited number of social workers, licensed addiction counselors, and we can maximize their work if we can do some of their work via telemedicine. Um, they're not traveling, they're having to go from place to place. Exactly. However, I think we can't force telemedicine on people. Someone's got to be comfortable sitting in front of a screen, talking to someone, sharing just like they would be in person. If they're not, we need to make sure that they have an opportunity to see someone in person as much as possible. So you mentioned a, a key uh, challenge for persons with mental illness, uh, and that is access to psychiatrists. I know in my own story, when I have moved from one state to Indiana, it was literally like four months wait uh, until I found a psychiatrist in my area. Are there ideas being floated around for ways that you can get more psychiatrists on the ground and particularly in rural areas? There are strategies that have been put into place at the federal level as well as at the state level to help recruit and then retain psychiatrists in Indiana. Part of that is um, assistance with loans, student loans. Psychiatrists graduate with a high amount of uh, student loan debt, and if, if they can get to an area that helps them 
uh, pay some of that off. Uh, that's that's attractive. Um, I think providing an opportunity for psychiatrists to work um, in, in underserved areas, whether that's through the federal government that will pay someone a stipend to do that or other mechanisms as a way to attract people to, to, uh, to the state. Um, the other, uh, then on the other end of that, I think is the growing workforce of certified recovery specialists, peer specialists. I had that question written down. Oh, great. What does Kevin think about peer I, I love them. They, they, they can do phenomenal work to keep people engaged. So then you can, you can have your master's level folks and your physicians spend time being doctors, not necessarily tracking people down for appointments and follow-up and those kinds of things. Peer specialists can play a great role in that. We developed the, uh, the initial certification process in Indiana and curriculum for, for peer specialists. We fund for 60 to 100 to get certified every year. Um, we have hundreds of them trained in the state of Indiana, and uh, they're a great asset to the workforce. You know, I want to put a plug in first for uh, the church that employs me on a part-time basis, contract basis, and that's St. Peter's Lutheran. Uh, they have had the foresight to bring me on board somewhat like a peer specialist, helping people get connected to services like psychiatrists and therapists. Extending that out, what do you envision a faith community could do to help serve in the in the realm of mental illness that you work on in other words how can we enhance and not get in the way kudos to your church for being a leader and forward thinking enough to do that i think the faith-based community is one of the largest untapped resource for recovery across the country not just in indiana but across the country lots of people are connected to church very few pastors know what to do with that when someone comes with them struggling with a mental illness or an addiction other than make a referral to the hospital or an AA meeting. And if, if there's someone in the congregation or even training pastors to understand what that, what, what that treatment continuum looks like, I think can go a long way. Um, within the church, there's lots of stigma around addiction and mental illness. I, I think we're seeing the discussion around mental illness and addiction become more mainstream. And as we know, as things become more mainstream, they become uh, more topics um, in church congregations as well. So I think there's I think there's great resource um, in churches, not more than just opening up your basement for an AA meeting a couple times a week, but for really engaging and um, helping folks understand not only their recovery, but what the, the part that uh, their spirituality can play in that. What kind of role can your organization play in partnering with faith communities in Indiana to to help people with mental health diagnoses. I think there's lots of things that we can do, and we're, uh, we're, we're partnering now with the State Department of Health to work with a group of pastors in Indianapolis about uh, the issue of addictions. So I think there's some things that can happen in terms of what uh, addiction is and what it isn't. Um, talk about the stigma around addiction, how it keeps people from treatment, how it keeps people in the dark. I think there's education around how to refer, uh, knowing the signs and symptoms, what to do with uh, with folks when they come to you with that concern. But I think more importantly is how to welcome them back and treat people in recovery. Um, in my own church, there's probably people in recovery that I, I would assume so, and I would hope so. Um, but we don't necessarily talk about that out loud. I think congregations, the, the power of connection in a congregation, the power of support, the power of accountability, 
um, can really be a, a strong factor, motivating factor um, within congregations. You mentioned that there uh, has been in many churches, I'll, I'll speak for myself, This the I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but part of our mission here is to you know, bridge the divide between those in the faith community and those who have mental illness. There's also a divide that I see between people who serve in, not necessarily the people who serve in government, the whole issue of separation of church and state. Um, As you've served, and you've served quite some time in government, do you see progress? I think we're seeing more of that today than we were five to seven years ago. I know that when I go out and talk to a local recovery council or to a provider or to a, to a group about the opiate crisis, um, my beliefs are my beliefs, and my beliefs aren't necessarily everybody else's beliefs. But it's okay to talk about, I think, how those beliefs impact what you do because it really is leading you towards making sure you can provide the right services to the right folks at the right time. There's always should be separation of church and state, but church communities are part of our state and they have a role to play. And I think we can capitalize on that. Just like we, we capitalize on other groups. We capitalize with the PTA. We capitalize with Little League. We capitalize with university clubs to get information out about addiction. Churches are a group or a group of people uh, live and do life together. I hear you saying that education is a, a big role that government can play. I think so. Making sure that uh, people understand the science behind addiction, the science behind uh, mental illness, the rationale for medication. Uh, personally, I'm a believer in the power of prayer, but I think God also gave us other tools for us to take advantage of. And I think that's important as well. Um, the stigma around people on uh, medication or someone stops taking their medication um, can be very telling, particularly in a church congregation. We want to shift gears to ask you our uh, signature question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, uh, what does healing mean to you? So healing doesn't necessarily, to me, mean absence of pain, because I don't think we can promise that to anybody. I think healing is, um, uh, myself included, helping people to um, understand what that is, understand where that pain might come from, whether it's addiction pain or mental illness, and to understand the options available to them in order for them to minimize um, the impact of that pain on their daily life. It could be psychic pain, it could be physical pain, it could be addiction pain. Um, but to understand kind of where that comes from, um, I think is, is certainly an important part of the healing process. Um, the other thing I firmly believe is every individual needs to define what it means for them to be healed um, or to be healthy, for them to be better. Um, that's certainly not for me to make that value judgment. Um, because if I do, I'm seeing that through my lens of what healthy looks like and what better looks like. And I don't know that individual story. Um, that was particularly evident when I worked um, in the juvenile correctional facilities. And we see kids come in with lifetimes of trauma, lifetimes of disadvantagement, lifetimes of poverty. And then we wonder why they weren't making the right decisions. Um, and it came to me is that they didn't have access to the same decisions that I had or that my kids had. 
I couldn't put my uh, my value of what what the right ones were on them because I wasn't in their situation. If you've got a if you've got a 15 year old boy who's with a single parent, strung out on drugs, then he goes out and steals food to feed the rest of the family. You kind of understand that situation. Doesn't make it correct, but you have to understand it within the context of what that uh, that individual has, was going through at the time. Um, no excuses for illegal or hurtful behavior, but understanding that certainly sure. impacts how you approach that work. I really like your response. That was a. Uh... I think pretty unique to what we've heard. And part of healing is, is knowing options of how to get healthier. <laughs> and, and that's a big part of it. Uh, when, you, when you talk about people who have grown up in more difficult situations, they may not even know some of the options that are there right. to get better. And, and you're really and their options will be much different from mine. I've got health insurance. I've got a strong family. I've got um, uh, a church family. I've got others that would support. I've got that network around me, and others aren't going to have all of that. So you have to see it from their perspective. Yeah. And the other thing uh, you said that I really tuned into was talking about defining what being healthy is, and I, I think that is different for different people. This may be a bit controversial, but something that I've thought of in terms of like the opioid epidemic, uh, people taking pain pills, is that people are seeking a state of health that isn't really realistic. And so they go to these medicines wanting to, you know, quote unquote, be healed to get to a place that isn't, it's elusive. And taking the medicine, you're just on this well, that, yeah, go on. That Don't ties hate. in with what you said at the beginning of your definition. It doesn't mean being pain free. You know, that's part of the illusion, as Eric mentioned, of, you know, opioids in the first place. I mean, we try to rid our lives of pain. And, you know, that's not biblically valid. That's not emotionally, psychologically, you know, it's just not going to happen. Right. Um, it's not good for us. Yeah. Uh, just a quick example. Six years ago, my wife had a partial knee replacement on her left leg. She came home with lots of hydrocodone, refill pads, and the instructions were take your medicine, stay ahead of the pain. You don't want it to break through. Um, this past summer, she had a full knee replacement, and the instructions were it's going to hurt, so ice it, elevate it, take Advil, shift positions and if you can't sleep take one hydrocodone i mean it was a much different instruction at post-surgery than five or six years ago so i think through this crisis we've learned it's going to hurt so and there are ways to deal with that without reaching for um an opiate uh, right off the bat the other thing is as people become addicted they're always going to seek that that same feeling they got with, with that first high and they will never achieve that um, because your body becomes more tolerant. You can't reach that level of, of dopamine and, and that feeling in your brain. Uh, so they're always chasing that same feeling. When you hit an inflection point where instead of chasing a high with these medicines or, or with right. these drugs, instead you're almost taking them just to not have those withdrawal symptoms, to, to be sick, which is a totally different yes. situation. I mean, it's two sides of, of the same coin, and that's that's just the the quandary we have ourselves in in this right. epidemic. 
That's a great example with your wife. That yeah, is it is. fantastic. And it also <laughs> yeah. brings up, you know, the face of opioid addiction is not only the strung out teenager on the street looking for a fix. You know, I know in my family, you know, 70, 80 year olds who have been prescribed pain pills for right. 50 years. And overnight, they're being asked to, you know, go off pills they have depended on for their right. whole lifetime. It gets into the issue of how do we how do we manage pain and how do we make sure that the people that really need that level of medication are getting it. I'm all for individuals in palliative care, cancer treatment, other types of, of chronic conditions need some assistance to, to, to overcome and to relieve that pain and that suffering. Um, but we also know that 80% of heroin users in the past five years started with prescription medication. So there's a, there is a, a relationship there that uh, we've got to be very careful with. Is addiction a mental illness? Well, they both affect the brain. I think they both are chronic brain diseases. Uh, I, I think they, but they affect the brain differently uh, and can be treated differently. Um, but there's not medication for most addiction um, with meth or marijuana or, or other substances, cocaine, other substances. So I don't know that an addiction is a mental illness, but they are both chronic brain diseases. And when you treat them like that, mm -hmm. that changes how you perceive the disease as well as the individual. This has been great. Very, very nice good to, meet, to you. meet you. Have a great evening and uh, and uh, enjoy your your work and your ministry. Do you being in student or I almost said student government, being in state government for so long? Are you counting the days till retirement? Or? <laughs> Let's say I've uh, I passed the eligibility mark a couple of years ago. So <laughs> yeah, oh, nice. I bet. Well, thanks for people like you who uh, that hardest service doesn't who stop, are called uh, to, stop to absolutely. Stick it out. Well, it's it's been a great career, I tell you that. Well, keep fighting. We'll do. Fight. Yeah. Well, Tony, Kevin Moore. Excellent guest. Yeah, I want to thank my wife, Susan, who recommended Kevin, and he was uh, very knowledgeable, lifelong public servant. Yeah, the, the servant leadership of Kevin's heart, you could tell, just, I mean, even from the very beginning, the story he told about when he was looking to be an intern, and he's actually going overtime <laughs> in his career and, and continuing to serve uh, in a very important role in state government. Yeah, I think that's one of my takeaways, Eric, that he is someone who is both knowledgeable and passionate about serving those in need, as we talk about biblically, you know, the least of these. He is knowledgeable in knowing what works and what can be improved. Uh, he seemed very realistic about um, doing it efficiently. Um, uh, mm hmm uh, and yet, <clears throat> and yet, compassionate toward toward those that that he is working with, and and those we've served. At the end, you may hear this as a healing story. He he shared with us some great examples of persons in his own employ that have turned the corner and yeah, experienced healing and recovery themselves. 
Mm-hmm. He certainly is exposed to a lot of options when it comes to uh, treatment and, and was really uh, talking about education, educating the public, knowing what is available, and, and trying to disseminate that information to as many people as possible. Uh, mentioned that about the role with churches, where he, he definitely sees churches as an untapped resource for um helping people with, with uh, addiction and mental illness. I think under his leadership, th- that agency is really going to focus on educating and find as many places as possible to to um, to partner. Uh, even I, I really like the point he made about DMHA being at more of the tables with other agencies and state government. And part of you know addressing this systematically is being able to bring their expertise to various other areas of government, because it does impact so many different mm-hmm. parts of the state. It's a big job he has, and so many have. And, you know, that that was another takeaway that I had is I asked the question of him, you know, how do you balance his his two titles, you know, mental health and substance abuse, because the, the need for both is so vast. And mm-hmm. as we know, you know, the funding and and personnel for for each of them has historically been in decline yeah and it's not getting any better and uh, the sad reality is if <clears throat> if we fund one need uh, greater than the other the other need right will decline more often than not I think uh, it's very clear he takes <clears throat> a balanced approach to yeah I think he does as money well and resources as he can. Are spent. Yeah. I hope he'll continue to have support from all sectors. You know, the mm-hmm. the federal government, the local government. He mentioned Columbus doing some good work, and right. the faith communities. Yeah. We didn't ask him if people call him a drug czar. <laughs> if you're listening, uh, Kevin, uh, we. <laughs> It's such a the weird Hoosier, term. The Hoosier drugs are. The Hoosier drugs are. It's <laughs> so strange. You know, we got in a really nice discussion uh, around the question, what does healing mean to you, and talking about to what extent do we try to make people's lives pain-free and, and addressing that from both a medical as well as a spiritual lens. And, you know, in my own walk, I think understanding pain and what's realistic and what uh, needs to be treated. You know, there's a a very keen need for discernment there that we need to be able to teach people. And and medicating our pain away is not the way to spiritual wholeness or physical wholeness. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that impacts every age, uh, every stratus of economic absolutely uh, and uh, uh, social life you know we mentioned in the program that you know the face of the the opioid addict is not you know the strung out teenager mm-hmm. shooting up heroin on the top floor of a um, of a building it's you know it's also the the 75 year old grandmother who's been prescribed pain pills all of her life. That's right. I think we've got uh, the state's in good hands with Mr. Kevin Moore. Thanks for coming on, Kevin. Yeah, thank you for your service. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. 
please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. I, when I was in, in college, I went to a, a proctology center. You know? Wow. <laughs> Kendrick Hospital. And yes. They were, known, it was, they were known as the asshole capital of the world. <laughs> we'll have to read this explicit now. Oh, dear. <laughs> I may edit that part out there, Tony. Oh, I, I wish you would keep it. <laughs> yeah. Um...